Hello and welcome to Connected, the podcast about people, ideas, marketing, technology and everything that's good. I'm ASD, a digital man here at Mediacom. Hi, I'm Sue, Chief Transformation Officer at Mediacom. And joining us in the room for the second time is our global Chief Digital Officer, Rob Norman. How are you? I'm fantastic, thank you. Yeah. Or at least in my own opinion. <laughs> yes, you are. Uh, you've got another podcast just while we're here. What, what is that? It's called Tagline. <laughs> and we've recorded one episode so far. We have Wendy Clark, the CEO of DDB, and... Uh, Rob Riley, who's the creative chairman, whatever that might mean, of McCann, and it's sponsored by iHeartRadio and AdAge, and we're provided with whiskey by Bullet Bourbon, which is owned by Diageo, bless them. It's a good one as well, I've listened to it. It does seem like you like each other. Well, no, the most important thing is we have a barman actually <laughs> in the studio with us, and this is true, and he made three cocktails during the recording, so the last third of the podcast is entertaining but incomprehensible. <laughs> yeah. So we are discussing whether we're open to sponsors uh, for Connected Podcasts. I don't know, anyone out there has got any suggestions? Anyone interested in that? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I, obviously, subject to is bar transparency of course, requirements yeah, of course, and so of course, forth. I mean, heaven knows we wouldn't want to trip over that dirty old line. Definitely not. Moving swiftly on, um, the point of this is you've launched the Group M Interaction for this year. I fa- you can find it through your LinkedIn if you just search Group M Interaction 2017 or look on your LinkedIn. Uh, what is it? Well, it's the 11th one, apart from anything else, and it's sort of an annual polemic, if you like, on the state of digital media and marketing. It's complicated to do because having written 10 of them you have to read all of those 10 before you write the 11th one in order Mm. not to either contradict yourself or or repeat yourself and it's really our our ruminations if you like on the digital landscape and this year for the first time we actually did 20 phone interviews with the great and the hopelessly rich of the digital uh, media industry from facebook and google and, and many others as well and then distilled their well thought remarks into our own work uh, successfully without quoting anyone although we did quote uh, Mark Thompson CEO of the New York Times and also Thomas Jefferson Winston Churchill and Karl Marx but apart from that very little of it was directly attributable it's good good company it's extremely extremely well written or long it's fantastic it's very well written Um, I'm quoting it all the time Um, uh, sometimes I'm just stealing from it. Sometimes I'm actually attributing it to Rob. It's, it's for those of us that don't have the the guts or the talent to write books like The Glass Wall, oh, for yeah. example. I mean, great, great plug. Yeah. Um, so, is digital really changing things with the perspective of 11 years of this year, next year, or do the old marketing truths still rule? Well, I think old marketing truths still apply on the basis that in order to be successful in marketing you have to a create brands that are relevant to people you have to create a significant cohort of people who are aware of them a smaller but useful cohort of people that prefer them versus the choices and perhaps a smaller but even more useful cohort of people that will actually buy them so if you think that's the purpose of marketing then it hasn't changed the techniques of marketing and everything we do in terms of how we think about segmentation, how we think about consumer behavior, how we think about media selection and targeting, how we think about analytics, how we think about optimization, how we think about attribution, have been revolutionized from a technique point of view, but the principles haven't changed much. That's really interesting. Uh, I mean, I was just looking down the list of um, chapters we've got. AR and VR, the new reality peak stuff. We've got video, we've got media pricing and TV yeah. with the data. But it's not just digital, it's not, not just display, it is digital as a 
Well, so the, 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 the thing about interaction is, and like everything else that actually that I write, I don't know about anyone else. I mean, the professional writers among us might have a different view of this. <laughs> but I find that the How key... How getting paid for it? <laughs> the, the key to it is, is finding the first sentence. And then if you can find a first sentence that you think is engaging, you can sort of start from there. Um, in this particular case, the first sentence is actually not the first sentence of the problem. It was the first thing I, I wrote. And the first thing I wrote was, what about tomorrow? And my principle being that if 11 years ago you mm. typed what about tomorrow into a Google search bar, you would have got some nonsense results, mm. probably defining the notion of tomorrow mm. in some way or another. And now, of course, if you ask for what the weather forecast is in Theobald's Road, and it'll tell you what the current weather is, and then you do a second search, which is what about tomorrow, the cognition involved in this will mean it understands the context of the second search in relation to the first search and that's actually a massive breakthrough in so many ways and a huge difference about how the world is going and the development of ai in business sometimes is completely obvious and people go straight down the rabbit hole to alexa and think that mm. alexa is ai which is actually a very narrow application of ai because what alexa does is it interprets voice and connects that voice into commands that feed what's searchable on amazon whether that search is for media content available on amazon prime or for sale or goods and services that sold for amazon and if it's a more general question like how old is donald trump the answer being a year older than you'd prefer him to be um the what it does it goes to wikipedia to get that answer yeah. so that's a deep and narrow application of ai the most fascinating ai piece actually isn't interaction at all it was in the uh, new york sunday times magazine and the sunday before before christmas or the holidays as mm. we call them in america mm. and someone wrote a, a thing about inside google and google brain and talked about the development of AI at Google and that the big breakthrough in AI development was actually in translation. And it was mm. Google Translate that really unlocked it. And the thing that unlocked it was a move in Google Translate from taking kind of sequential CPUs, computer processing units, which were kind of super fast and the kind of things that beat Gary Kasparov at chess 20 something years ago mm. amazingly that it is 20 something years mm. ago and substituted them for graphical processing units which rely on quantum computing and work in parallel rather than sequentially and what they do is they operate more like a neural network and think more like the human brain and suddenly they discovered that the leap forward in translation software they were doing more in three months than they'd done in the three years yeah that preceded it and clearly it's highly complex so what they've been able to do previously was get to a state where you could produce an almost perfect dictionary and a pretty good phrase book mm. and that's a long way short of conversation and so really the breakthroughs in translation software have led to a whole lot of other things and now if you are a google ecosystem dependent user and for example you use a pixel phone and you use gmail and google docs mm. and calendar and 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 the things that it will do are remarkable so i could be sitting here in theobald's road and get an alert that said my next meeting's at six thirty in old compton street but you should leave early because there is a demonstration going down mm. shaftesbury avenue and you yeah. might want to think of an alternative way of getting there now that's pretty clever because that is actually a quite a wide 
application mm. of AI and Google's strategy, who I think are emerging as maybe the world's outstanding science company. Separately, I would say Facebook are emerging as the world's outstanding engineering company, but that's mm-hmm. a, a, a nuance that we can talk about. And my sense is that what Google are doing is they are joining up the dots and putting AI in horizontally across the business as opposed to looking at deep, narrow applications. So that's very, very exciting. So that's, so that's an interesting because I think this year, next year is really about disruption, right? And, and that there is disruption and who is coping with it and who isn't coping with it. Uh, that, that's how I read it. Well, actually, it's not. I okay. mean, it isn't, it isn't. So I, when I'm feeling kind of fancy about my job, what, I have two answers. When someone says, what's your job? And I say, I'm a media buyer, is mm-hmm. one version. And the other version is, I'm really lucky I get to sit with all of the most disruptive companies in the world and then try as much as I can to be an advisor to the disrupted on the threats and opportunities created by yeah. the disruptors. People find the media buyer version more plausible, by the way, when given the choice of those two. The other great comment in that New York Sunday Times Mm -hmm. article said, what's going on in Silicon Valley today is not just disruption, it's institution building. It was a key phrase, I think. Mm -hmm. And the institution building principally referred to what's become known as GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. And the notion that these businesses which are so much more than businesses are the equivalent these days of nation states the concentration of economic power in those companies and the groups of economic influence that are represented by all the members of amazon prime for example which i believe if you took the aggregated if you sort of made a faux gdp out of amazon prime members the world would go u.s china Amazon Prime members in terms of economic blocks. And you've heard Facebook talking itself as now the world's most populous country, etc. And so I think this time it was more about the institution building and those institutions and what effect they have. And sure, disruption is a downstream effect of that. And how you cope with it was was what I meant. So I think I'm saying exactly the same as you. And what I'm not sure that anyone's... well. Do you think many businesses outside that that set are, have grasped how much change that will make for their businesses, well, so whether th- they're B two B or B two C? Sure. So I, I think it kind of depends where you start from. Right. What's clear is that he who has a legacy has a problem, and and it's actually more of a problem than for most people than it is an an opportunity. Oddly in service businesses that have got broad geographical reach and depth of expertise and context actually a legacy isn't such a terrible thing because the history of our business and many businesses like our businesses that new things come along but old things don't go away mm. so people still do in some places read newspapers particularly in india listen to the wireless um, and people listen to fm radio and people do look at billboards and sure. posters mm. and so forth so you still need all of those things so additive skills rather than substitutional mm-hmm. skills are what's yeah. are what's required but i think there are many businesses and you obviously think about retailers where the institutional legacy is a problem for some people mm-hmm. and it's a big problem for a lot of people and the problem is deceptively large mm-hmm. so people think that amazon's really important and they're disrupting retailing yes of course then they comfort themselves by saying oh well in the United States only about 10% of all retail transactions Mm. are executed online 
But here's the problem. If you own a massive estate of many, many, many retail stores, you simply can't survive losing 10 or 15% of your turnover for a sustained period of time. If the 10 or 15% of your turnover, for example, in if it was in the UK, so let's say you lost all of Manchester to e-commerce, let's make it up, I mean, that's not yeah. going to happen, then actually you could cope with that because you still needed the same numbers of people and staff in all of your other stores, yeah. but you could shut down Manchester. Manchester. If you start losing 10 or 15% evenly across your estate, your logistics costs are still the same, yeah. your staff costs are still the same, your real estate costs are still the same, yeah. and no one can take that hit on a small yeah. margin business. So actually, we're approaching a tipping point in a way that happened to a large part of the newspaper business because in 2000 or so, pretty much everyone knew what was going to happen to the newspaper business because Craigslist had existed and started knocking out classified from local newspapers. Mm. Hot Jobs and Monster.com started taking yep. out um, Jobs Classified, which was a huge source of revenue to The Guardian and others. But people thought that it was going to happen by increments rather than fall mm. off a cliff. Mm. And, of course, what happened was, for many people, it fell off a cliff from which they never recovered and i think there are many retailers now that are seeing incremental bits of their business chipped away but it's not impossible to imagine four-year cycle going minus five minus five mm -hmm. minus five minus 30 shut that's really easy to imagine mm -hmm. and i think there's quite a lot of businesses that are threatened in that kind of way and the implications more broadly for society if the retail infrastructure in a developed market does fall apart really fall apart and suddenly the anchor tenants of malls go away because if you lose the anchor tenant at one end the stores closest to it go with it if you lose the anchor tenant at the other end you just have a gale and tumbleweed running through mm. it before you know which then affects all the gas stations that were built mm. nearby and the hotels and the bars and all the other developments and all of the employment that goes with that. So we're going through a first phase of high-paid middle-class jobs being mechanized and automated and being replaced by lower-wage service jobs, of one description of which retail is one of those. And if the next shoe drops, then the social consequences and the economic consequences for the losers in this game are potentially catastrophic because people seem to think that somehow between Amazon, Facebook, Google and Apple, $2 trillion of market capitalization, which is what it is now when you add them up and then add another trillion when you put Alibaba, Tencent and Baidu into the pile, has somehow been achieved at little cost to other people. Mm. Well, yeah. there's going to be a big cost to other people yeah. and it may lag, which doesn't make those companies bad people, but it makes the consequences of their success pretty frightening. And it's all a bit sounding a bit bleak. So mm. for for diversification well i think so and i think that you know i, I sort of said in in interaction that for a generation now we people like us have described ourselves as information workers which is fine but the trouble is being an information worker when the machine is far far, far better at processing information i.e the gary kasparov ibm sure. deep blue period <laughs> was becomes kind of pointless Right, And so what you have to do is you have to be an intelligence worker rather than an information worker mm -hmm. when the machine can do things smarter than yeah. you. If AI evolves in the way that 
it seems to be doing, then being an intelligence worker might not be enough either because if you can automate information and then you can automate intelligence, what do you have left? And so what you have left is imagination, if you want yeah. to alliterate with three eyes, <coughs> is yeah. that we have to get into a world which rewards imagination and i'm really inspired by the maker movement i'm really inspired by etsy and companies like that and i'm really inspired by the opportunities of the dropping of barriers to the creation of small business Mm. and Mm. enterprise and profoundly hope that all of those people who you joke about saying oh well they knit their own shoes actually become a key part of the economy both which, as which creators is kind of a back to the future thing which the internet often does doesn't it yeah, so absolutely. you know back to a high street not being full uh, maybe being full of of little businesses back to the blacksmith well so one, one's dream of all of that is Perhaps what the high the street becomes as a farm market right. and what you would really love the world to be is a farm market that rotated with different kinds of stores selling different kind of merchandise because people won't be able to maintain it on a seven day a week basis and if you're not all that old and spent time in the what is now the uber fancy hmm. part of inner west london notting hill gate in the old days at portobello road there was a really great mix of very good and sometimes expensive and sometimes cheap antique and second-hand stores, which was great because it was the high-end and low-end of the recycling mm-hmm. market. Yeah. I always like to think of the antiques market as being the high-end of recycling. And so you had that. Then what you had was a whole bunch of people selling new goods of one description or recently vintage stuff like albums and whatever yeah. else it happened to be. But you had fruit and veg and house goods in the market on different days as well. And alongside... And a little ecosystem of service business of hardware stores and restaurants and so forth, which seemed to me like a kind of great and sort of sustainable model almost for how we might look forward. And so I like makers. I like growers. I like the idea of social planning that enables those things. And I don't think that anyone would miss a reinvention of mall culture and pedestrian only city centers remade for commerce so you so you'd say brands need to get with that sense of authentic yeah i think they do and i think the other thing that brands can do um, and retailers can can do is rethink themselves as platform businesses and i think some really smart brands have thought of themselves as platform business so you take you know, Unilever, for mm. example. So when Unilever, for years and years and years, had a relatively narrow product portfolio in food and personal mm. care and household care and would iterate brand extensions from that and it would change formats from time to time. But more recently, it acquired T2, which is a boutique tea business. Um, they acquired uh, Seventh Generation, which is a detergent mm. business in North America, which they'll take globally. They acquired the Dollar Shave Club mm. and so forth. And they did it partly to kind of internally disrupt themselves in terms of the model, partly to engage with a different kind of customer, if you like, than the ones they were used to being sort of supermarket brands. But also because they realized that what they could do for seventh generation is take a business that's based in Burlington, Vermont, um, which is very nice, Burlington, hmm. Vermont, by the way, and Ben & Jerry's, which they also own, is yeah. based in Burlington, Vermont, for right. fans of Burlington, Ice Vermont, cream, and the Ice home cream. of Bernie Sanders and, and all of that how we miss him um 
is what they did is they recognized that they could create a platform to distribute those brands at much greater scale because they had the logistics and the infrastructure to do it. And what they've been smart about, which I admire, is that if you go to Ben and Jerry's now, and I'm not saying that, that I do, but I understand that the culture of Ben and Jerry's and Unilever's decision to give them as it were, creative and cultural independence mm. within mm. Unilever, mm. as I believe they've done with Seventh Generation as well, is a recognition that they're reevaluating themselves as a platform. Now, you think also about business like L'Oreal, and they acquire new brands with new routes mm. to market, and that's operating as a platform. And it would be interesting to see when you look at the retail infrastructure if, for example, Tesco, who is a, a client of Mediacoms, of course, to what degree, and maybe they do this already, to what degree they give a platform for to local producers. Mm -hmm. And it would be, and I think it actually happens to an extent, mm -hmm. but it would be a beautiful thing Yesterday, perceptually yeah, to think about a superstore and say, wow, isn't this interesting that 80% of the fresh goods in this superstore were actually grown or raised within a 10-mile radius of this store. That's a life-changing so notion. So, overall, disrupt yourself before you get disrupted. Well, and also disrupt yourself and, and find some personal connection, whether it's personal because it's... You know, the word personalization gets tossed around a bit too easily in the, the marketing world, but I think it can take many forms. Mm. And, and part of personalization is that if you're in your giant supermarket, but you knew the beef you were growing was raised on a farm five miles away, to me, that's personalization because mm. it gives you a relevant connection. We've covered a lot. Yeah, we've um, done yeah. about we've, we've touched on a which lot. Which is good. We saw TV was in the, the agenda. Yeah. And we've seen one of the strengths of TV is Barb and the common currency um, but now with addressable TV it's beginning more be to become more disparate and it's be beginning to become more measured in different ways do you think that will destroy tra traditional TV and what impact do you think that will have on the market I think that addressability in television is yeah. fundamentally a good thing and so it is great that Sky is leading the market in bringing addressability here I think what's interesting about their approach to it is that it's being used predominantly, as I understand it, for local businesses who previously didn't have access to television as a medium and certainly didn't have access to television medium after the consolidation of ITV. Now, that's fascinating to me because the biggest difference commercially between a business like Sky and a business like Facebook, apart from the geographic reach, is that Sky is a short-tail business and relies on its business for the biggest thousand companies in the United Kingdom. And Facebook relies on that to a part, but only at about 30% of yeah, its volume. Yeah, I, I was stunned by that stage. And yeah, massively on the yeah, mid-tail yeah, and long-tail yeah. like, like Google, of course. And so, like Google, so what's happening is that addressability is enabling Sky mm. to significantly extend Small. its reach into smaller businesses albeit with a video format that's relatively expensive to produce addressable tv has been around for ages in the states longer in the states yeah, is so it is it big there so addressable tv in the states is big in terms of the number of homes and the number of boxes that can be addressed mm. so all of dish which is satellite distribution and direct tv which is satellite distribution are addressable most of comcast set-top boxes are addressable and so realistically we're up to about 70 million addressable homes wow. which is quite a big, That's number, a big now. number now here's the dilemma so 
distribution of television and the content on television are most often owned by different people. And it is the person who owns the content that has the ability to sell the advertising. So if you want to buy an ad on a CBS property, it's CBS that gets the money, not Spectrum Cable or Charter Communications, Uh, because they pay CBS a carriage fee for their content. What they also get are what's called the local avails. And the local avails to the carrier are around two minutes an hour. And so it's the local avails that are available in the addressable market. Now, here's the thing that's going to change, we think, because there's becoming a consolidation, a vertical integration, if you like, in that area. So Comcast bought NBC Universal, so a distributor owns a content carrier, mm-hmm. and AT&T is buying Time Warner. Yep. And so AT&T will also have distribution and content. And so that starts moving the market. And if those two players decide that on all of the Comcast installed base that you can buy all of the NBC inventory on an addressable basis, and if you could buy all of the Turner and CNN and Comedy Central and CW, all of which are Time Warner properties, on an addressable basis on AT&T, the thing shoots up. So the simple math historically in the US has always been, if you wanted to reach more than 30% of the population, you would advertise nationally because assembling local markets ended up being more expensive and inefficient. Mm. The same is broadly speaking true of addressability. But the big breakthrough moment comes when you get that mainstream inventory at scale being sold addressably, at which point... The value proposition, I think, to advertisers, to the owners of content, the owners of distribution, and indeed the agencies goes up mm. because it takes on more qualities that are internet-like from a data point of view and a delivery point of view, yet provides the content frame of extended viewing and big screens that advertisers and advertising like so much. So I think it's interesting. But I don't see the destruction of television and the marketplace as we know it no. being engendered by addressability in the near term Interesting. Um, okay if you were Google Rob mm. or Facebook or Amazon um, who have we left out of Gaffer uh, Apple. Uh, or Apple. But, but Apple doesn't sell okay, much inventory. I won't, I, won't, yeah. I won't ask you if you were Apple. Mm. So if you were Google, Facebook or Amazon what would you do what would you do what would your aims be for the next five Five ten years. That seems like a long time frame for I, for any of them. What well, would you do next year? What would you do? What would you do next year? So, I think that Google needs to think about changing its monetization model and being less dependent on search than it has been. So their search business has held up, even though people now if they want to shop for most things, will say, oh, well, I'm an Amazon customer or a Tesco.com customer. I will go search for detergent there and I don't need to go to Mm. Google to do that. Equally, they may have a great healthcare app, whether it's WebMD or the Mayo Clinic. And if you say, I've got a bump on my head and spots on my face, you would go there to search on it rather than to go search on Google. So Google is losing a bunch of monetizable searches, particularly on the the desktop. But it's being replaced by fantastic long-tail search monetization on mobile because Mm. 
when McDonald's stops being one customer but starts becoming 20,000 customers, so each restaurant is a relevant search term, mm. then there's money in them, their hills or, or, mm. or burgers. But having said that, they'll want to do better in other areas. I think YouTube is a huge priority for them. Mm. And I think in YouTube, whilst they win on the dimension of they have got the longest average view time of the digital native platforms, I think they have a significant problem with the amount of as advertisers at least would understand it quality video and i think that's a challenge for them to get that up and also to find an economic model which means that you can acquire the right kind of content at the right kind of scale and then use their data to monetize it because other kinds of content in ugc and the same would be true with facebook video and snap video is anything that involves fandom voyeurism or narcissism is generally speaking cheap to acquire but hard to monetize and quite scary for advertisers and stuff that isn't any of those is that is easy to monetize and good for advertisers is relatively expensive to Mm. hire so i think that solving that riddle is going to be important for google i think google also needs to reinsert itself more effectively in the e-commerce value chain i think facebook has done extremely well in retargeting and Mm. probably does that better than the Mm. google display network and has become a a threat and an option both against gdn but also against search because the mechanics are slightly different so i think google's got a lot to uh, do there i think they want to make big inroads into cloud i think they're Mm. if they were disappointed in themselves i think it would be that they've let amazon become Mm. the king of cloud and i think google also has an extremely uh advanced agenda which is rapidly approaching to be the dominant player in um AI-based autonomous systems for automobiles and other things. Mm. And I think they need overall to diversify out of av- out of search and more broadly out of advertising. Mm. From Facebook's point of view, I think they are clearly got a huge runway still from a monetization point mm. of view. I think their work with the long tail is terrific. I think that they're turning on the jets, as mm. someone's called it, on the monetization of Instagram. I think mm. their engineering architecture which was so faulty, which forced them to buy Instagram, not build it, forced them to buy WhatsApp before they could build Messenger, Mm. is now perfect, which Mm. is allowing them to clone Snap's features as fast as Snap can make them. Mm. And it's testament to an extraordinary kind of engineering culture. And I mentioned earlier the difference Mm. between the dominant science company and the dominant engineering company, Mm. and I think that is Facebook. And my sense is that Facebook's challenge, such as it is, and it's quite difficult to look at that numbers and see challenge, are really on a couple of very disparate fronts. I think the the first is how do they create an environment for monetizable longer video that doesn't corrupt something they've always held sacrosanct, which is the user experience. Mm. I think their vision for that is that Facebook will be the internet for many people and that people will do everything within the Facebook family of apps, which is bold. And Mark Zuckerberg wrote a 6,000-word polemic very recently, which said pretty much that in in not so many words. And I think their other problem is at the end of other end of the spectrum, which is a social responsibility problem, which is to an extent shared by Google and in particular YouTube. But people have talked a lot about the dissemination of fake news and yep. echo chambers and all the things I mean, that go with that. Do you think they've that. got a responsibility or do you think the well, critics have been unfair? No, I don't think critics have been uh, uh, unfair. No, it's my view that Facebook owes it to its users and to the world to allocate as much budget 
to the processes and systems that will actually help resolve that problem as they do to other things and when you think about the money they spend in the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars and what i'm not sure about yet is whether they're as prepared to spend a billion dollars on solving a social problem as they are prepared to spend a billion dollars on creating a commercial opportunity and i suspect that their influence is such and it's not just them and as i say it's google as well i think their influence is such that that obligation is now a clear and 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 present one so Mm -hmm. for them i think those issues are important I think Amazon is a fascinating business mm. and you know talk about the Amazon flywheel that keeps that thing moving so you maximize your assortment you optimize the price of that assortment you back it up with unbeatable logistics which creates more merchants wanting to come on your platform mm. which increases mm. your assortment increases your mm. buying power which optimizes your logistics sounds like a pretty good way to run a business mm. and they also have this gorgeous sort of asymmetrical monetization strategy which is we'll go make movies which will encourage people to sign up for prime to watch it free once people have signed up for prime they buy more stuff mm. from us this sounds like a hell of a plan and seems to be mm. working out if amazon has a problem it's number of items in a basket amazon is exceptionally good at selling people one thing at mm. a time and one of the kind of du- the double-edged sword of being a prime member is that in a way you don't really care because there's no incentive mm. to optimize your ordering and if you say i'd like a can of coffee order i'd like another can of coffee order the next day and you could kind of mm. keep going and get mm. 20 packages on consecutive days of the same stuff and i think that amazon for its own logistical point of view and indeed its overall share of wallet would be extremely well served by trying to solve the riddle of basket size and i think that's an interesting challenge it's, it's, it is it's, it is interesting particularly as you can order two things of coffee at the same time and they might still get delivered separately at the moment that's, that's which is an that's interesting true. aspect and of they the also have some interesting user experience challenges i mean brian gildenberg who knows who's a Cantar retail who's far more expert on this particular topic than I am uh, had an amusing line on the topic the other day he said you know if you look at all the things you can do on Amazon the the worst user experience is on apparel clothing okay um, yeah Paris they call America and then he left the theatrical pause and said oh and by the way they're now the la- third largest apparel retailer in the United States so it's kind of pretty scary that Amazon could do something badly and still do that and Amazon has a fairly unlimited upside uh potential and when you i mean i was actually very relieved on the night of the academy awards because i think my mention in in interaction was i described a subsection of amazon as from the world's biggest bookstore to manchester by the sea and mm. fortunately it did win a couple of oscars <laughs> otherwise i would have had to do an amended version <laughs> and say oh nearly but they did make it but i think what's also intriguing about that is that I'm not sure this is actually true, but it's as close to being true as as needs to be that Netflix, I think, last year spent more money on original content than any company in the world. And this year, if anyone overtakes them, it's going to be Amazon. And so they're becoming unbelievably influential mm. in the development of popular culture, which is kind of great in one dimension, but scary on another because a lot of the best entertainment that's being made is being made in gardens and distributed in gardens that every bit as walled as the gardens that we've talked about yeah. with Facebook yep. and Google yeah. and others. So yep. you need to think about this in a kind of fairly broad sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, the final question is is all about you. What are your personal and personal professional goals for the year? Be as personal as you can now, yeah. Rob. 
Yeah, we want to hear about your uh, your private life. <laughs> you do <there>. definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely personal goals. Well, there's <coughs> perhaps not. So we're <laughs> no, well, no, personal. So it's always important to you know build a house set on stone that you're comfortable to live in and feel secure in, and we are and that'll be finished at the end of may so congratulations I'm thank you i'm hoping to be sort of live from west cornwall connecticut um mm-hmm. in the so future that's not a metaphor that is literally literally yeah. building a building house, house building on a stone. house yeah and, and for those that may wonder to the contrary i can tell you that it's actually a dumb home rather than a smart Outside. home <laughs> um so there's a it's got a couple no, of things no wi-fi <laughs> no no so it has wi-fi and you can unlock the door with a code on a smartphone right. and you get an alert if the temperatures drop too much which tells you that the heating's gone off other than that we we made some big decisions um and we decided we were capable of turning a light switch on and off ourselves <laughs> and even using we call ourselves dim and dimmer and we were capable of doing that too so it has no other smartness other than that so that's a personal goal but it's not important to this but i think more broadly i think that I want people to think a bit smaller this year rather than to think a bit bigger. Interesting. And my sense is this. If you go back to 20 years ago and talked about a TV audience and a show that had 15 million viewers, you were talking about an enormously large number in, in UK yeah. television. And that was a big number. If you talked about a magazine that sold a million copies... And if you, that was a huge number. And, you know, Vogue, when I was a boy, was 150,000 or 180,000 copies. Mm. But it was a big number because it was the right big mm-hmm. number. Mm. One of the things that's happened in recent years is that we've become conditioned by our conversations about Google and Facebook mm. and Amazon mm. in particular to think that a billion daily average users, and I know some people have got a bit less than that and some people have got a lot more than that, is now the new kind of dynamic in which we think about things and so if someone comes to us and says 10 million people do this every week suddenly it sounds like a really small number and my sense is we need to think small because we're so preoccupied about how difficult it is to make the right creative assets in facebook by the way there's some very good ways of doing that and how do we do it in youtube but actually there's loads of platforms and i think about flipboard and vox and mm-hmm. mike and actually many of the others um, the mm-hmm. guardian who and whoever who actually create a really really great user experience mm-hmm. who are in danger of falling off the plan because of our collective the agency side and the advertiser side conditioning to think about these giant platforms so stop thinking about them in that sense and think about the real numbers of people you need to reach the real goal you're trying to achieve with reach and how you can combine the right volume with the right assets and environment to achieve something now it may be true that the data is less perfect and compelling and that the attribution may be less immediate but my sense is there is a huge amount of opportunity that remains in that area and people are doing some fantastic user experience and innovative stuff in 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 that world now what's fascinating to me is that people talk about a duopoly and i talk about a duopoly in interaction but put it in real perspective so it's probably true that facebook and google excluding china now have one way or another half of the digital advertising market now remember 
lots of that's off platform so the google display network is other people's inventory the facebook audience network is other people's inventory and remember also that half of the market is not half of the advertising for the 10,000 biggest companies in the mm. world because it includes the mid-tail and the long-tail. Mm. And so we and our clients shouldn't be seduced into thinking, whilst it's important that we have a winning game plan with Google and Facebook and Amazon, it's not the only mm-hmm. game plan. And there is much, 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 much room outside of those power players to create really great solutions for clients and consumers. And what I'd like to see is less of the peak anxiety that is surrounding these smaller media because of the kind of vacuum pump that seems to be pulling revenue away from them. And for both clients and us, not in any negative comment about Facebook and Google, but to be looking for those opportunities because it's always been true that agencies succeed, advertisers succeed, and brands succeed when they find points of communication that are relevant and compelling to their customers Mm -hmm. and can create durable advantage at those points of communication. And I think there's a lot going undone that needs to be done. So that's 2017 for me. There is a quote in the the what's next, the introductory Mm. uh, section, which says, today's challenge is to win with the winners and to find ways of aggregating the value from what's left, particularly when the minor in a, in comma in inverted commas participants are still valued by their audience for their context and authority yeah that, that's bang on yeah I mean I, and I believe that sincerely and we're doing both the innovators a disservice and mm. actually by the way the original content creators yeah. mm. a disservice yeah. and I've mentioned before that I think the balance of revenue distribution between the big platforms and the providers of original content yeah. is wrong and given how much of the action that takes place on Facebook is as a consequence of news and other culture that's being gathered and reported by other people, it's actually news and other media that oxygenates Facebook in the first place. And generally speaking, if you deny something oxygen long enough, it ends up not being terribly well. (laughs) And so it might be a good idea if the platforms thought about their revenue distribution in a slightly different way. Let's hope they're listening to the podcast. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you to both.